from the Journal of Corporal Greg Downing, Boston, Massachusetts, 2021. I don't consider myself a good soldier, as I'm not really built for it. I get tired easy, I don't have a personality built for violence, and I'm on the older side, so I'm not very spry. But I am loyal. I care about the cause. And I'm told that I have a talent for writing, speaking, and crafting a message. So when I came to Mr. Shaw about being a voice to spread the tale and message of Thomas Arlington, he immediately gave me his blessing. He furnished me with access to inside information, put me in contact with sources, and paired me up with experienced Han Toby Jungius, who I will happily report is the best partner a White Scarf podcaster could ask for. What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA, his family, his colleagues, and the handbook that he spearheaded as a force to preserve and protect the reunified states of America. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to, I guess, what we should call Season 4 of Through the Wind Door. I was recently going over all of my stats here, basically, on how long it's taken everything to play out over the last year. And it's an interesting bunch of stats here. First of all, when I say that this is Season 4, I say that in the sense that Based on like conversations that I've had between myself and Toby and also between ourselves and Alex, that we've been thinking of each book that we get into as being its own season. And part of the reason we were getting behind that idea is that every time we would turn over to a new book, we would start with a new intro. We would record something new. We would have a long, drawn-out version of it at the beginning of the season, and then a shorter snippet of that for each subsequent episode Mm. and now we're doing something a little bit different in that season four is actually going to include two books primarily because the first book that we're actually going to cover is the cartographer's handbook and from there swiftly move on to arlington in part because as we're going to cover as a part of our talking points The Cartographer's Handbook sort of occupies this unusual liminal space between Mm. Secret Rooms and Arlington. Like, if you looked at it on a graph, on a timeline, then you would see that, well, yes, first of all, Cartographer's Handbook does cover accounts of some events that happened long before any of the main story of New Century. But the Cartographer's Handbook is written is the what's considered the second printing of the handbook. And one of the things that is a part of the narrative is that when we first see Secret Rooms and Annie is reading the handbook off to the people of Weirwood, she's specifically reading from the first printing of it. And then the second printing doesn't come out until the epilogue of that book. And in the meantime, as you'll see when we get into Arlington, we actually see some of the events leading up to the second printing. So it is not quite between the two of them, but you can see how one sort of transitions to the other. The events of Arlington and even the events of Secret Rooms add in material for the cartographer's handbook specifically, such as the account at Weirwood, which is collected by Annie, in one of the early chapters of Secret Rose. So that's part of the reason why we're including it as being 
what would be is definitely going to be a longer season four encompassing Arlington in addition to the handbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started off this conversation by, as I said, looking at the overall stats of what Toby and I have accomplished here. Back when we began, we put out five episodes encompassing Let Them Go over a course of about two months. This is a little bit more complicated because during this time, we were still going into the format where we would record one Skype session, and I would take two weeks to try and edit the whole thing and then release it in one chunk. And those would very often be episodes that would take up an hour and a half to a little over two hours. Mm. When those we tra- chunky episodes. Yeah, those are very chunky episodes. Uh, as I was getting a feel for everything, and we were starting to do new material and play around with the format a little bit, going into Secret Rooms, we did 15 episodes just on the book itself over the course of five months. Now, the thing there is, is that while it's a, that's a lot of episodes on one book, it's also hard to say that it actually took us five months to cover Secret Rooms, because that second season also included four of the seven interviews that we've done up to this point. Now, the timing on that is a little complicated, because depending on how busy I was on the, the editing shelf or whatever with the rest of my life, very often I would not be putting out episodes as related to a specific schedule i would put them out as they were done and so therefore a lot of those interviews or even just individual episodes didn't necessarily go out on a weekly basis they went out some i said there were sometimes two different episodes particularly for the interview ones where i would put them out concurrently with our regular synopses basically going out two episodes a, a week but it's just like, you know, I was I was on a roll as far as I was concerned. I was excited by what we were doing, and I was wanting to get material into the hands of people as soon as possible, particularly Alex. You know, there was a thing going on there where he was having a bad time of writing Stone Spring Maidens and then Panther Soul, and I just wanted to get the content out there quickly as possible. It was just sort of a, a balm overall. So one could say that it... We could have covered secret rooms faster if I hadn't been doing this extra content. But, you know, I, it's not like I've done the math on it or anything like that. It's hard to say. That moves mm. us on to Tiger's Eye, which cons- we, sh- we, consider- uh, we knocked out in a weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so here's the interesting thing. It took us another five months to cover Tiger's Eye for 17 episodes. So in theory, the, the, the lengths there feel like they should be, you know, similar to, to Secret Rooms. But I definitely feel like overall Secret Rooms, we would have talked about overall less, if only because we are putting out so much more content in the form of all of those interviews and everything like that, which those would often go out in two parts as well. So they were, you know, taking up a significant amount of editing time to release. So Tiger's Eye still kind of holds the record as being the one that we've covered for the longest in the most depth overall. So what you're saying is that we're going to spend the next six months recording 20 episodes on Cartographer's Handbook. Got it. I mean, I I don't know yet how that is going to play out. The way that I have it arranged so far... And this may change as per how it seems like the episodes actually flow and going actually back into the chapters and seeing if the uh, these basically pairings actually work. The way I've charted it out, I have seven episodes of Arlington planned. First one is going to be chapters one through four. Second is chapters five through eight. Third is chapters 9 through 13. And then we switch it up a little bit. Episode 4 is going to be chapters 14 and 15. 
Episode five is going to be chapters 16 through 18. Episode six is going to be 19 through 22. And then the last two episodes, 23 and 24, will be the final episode seven. Mm. And I realize that saying all these numbers don't actually mean anything because... Like everybody's got their copy of Arlington open in front of them as we say all this, I imagine. Yeah. And also all of those numbers that I just shot at you, those numbers change if we actually look at the audio drama, because again, those are divided up into different amounts than the book itself. But I mean, in terms of like how these things are going to be numbered, I still have it all set up so that everything goes off of a, a, a single tier. So when I say, Episode one of Arlington, that's going to be episode 23, I guess, of the overall oeuvre of Through the Windor. It's just, this Ooh, is basically... fancy enough to have an oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've been doing this for a year, so yeah. yeah we get to join the club of fancy long-running podcasts, I suppose. Uh-huh. Mm, I like it. Exactly so. But that's, as I said, that that's a fast and loose framework that I have going on right now. I leave it open to change as we consider the individual elements of episodes, but I had to start somewhere. So that's basically how that is going to end up. And that's just once we get into Arlington itself. We're beginning with Cartographer's Handbook, and as Potentially mentioned in previous episodes, if you can remember back that far, because as previously mentioned, we spent five months covering Tiger's Eye. And um, in 2020 years, that's a decade? <laughs> Two decades? Like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It does feel like it's been forever, doesn't it? We decided at the time that we really needed to cover that more than we needed to cover some of the heavier aspects of cartographer's handbook tiger's eye was just going to end up being a little bit more fun and to be honest i feel like it kind of worked out in our favor yeah because greg like remind me again in the time since we started season three of through the window and us concluding uh season three of through the window how many new new century books have come out oh god um three i think yeah Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so at this rate, every time we finish a season of Through the Window, we've got three more seasons of material ahead of us. That's the great thing about all of this, is thinking about 2021 and all the new things that we're going to end up covering, I wondered to myself, okay, you know, how long is it going to take us to cover Arlington? How long is it going to take us to cover Princess Thieves and Christmas Thieves? And I think that the ongoing joke is that as long as Steamheart goes on for, and as in-depth as we get on some of the previous books, it might take us six months or more to cover all of Steamheart. And I don't even know what I was thinking here when I said it would take us six months to cover Steamheart. If it took us five months to do Tiger's Eye, it might take close to the better part of a year to get into all of the things that Steamheart does. Six months is speaking very liberally. Although, you know, who knows how it will actually turn out. But the good news on this front is that even by the time we finish phase one, we are going to have still so much to catch up on. Yeah, we are not in danger of, like, (laughs) getting into the anime catching up to the manga or the (laughs) Game of Thrones is catching up to the end of it problem here. We are getting through this as fast as we can, and Alex is taking our podcasts as fuel so that he can go faster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And honestly, that's part of the reason why... I created the new segment, News of the Century, because as these new books were coming out, like, the books always come out faster than the audio drama anyway, because that takes a lot more time to edit and put in music and everything like that. But we weren't going to want to wait two years 
or more no. to talk about all of these new books. We had to get something on the shelf directly, especially as, like, we've had this conversation a couple of times before. We've talked about this. All the way back in January of 2020, the reason this podcast exists is specifically because I wanted someone else besides Alex to talk about Uncivil Outlaw with. And to be perfectly honest... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to be perfectly honest, we never actually had a news of the century Uncivil Outlaw. It hadn't really occurred to us at that point. Uh, Because even as we were putting out our retrospectives on many of the early books of Phase 1, early being relative, because Let Them Go, honestly, came out a lot longer after many of the other books. But again, this is the order we were doing it again, so that's, Mm. that's what made sense for us. But the thing is, is that, you know, he was, Alex was releasing week by week the audio drama episodes of Uncivil Outlaw, and so, therefore, our first conversation about Uncivil Outlaw was literally the Q&A at the end of the release of the final episode of that. And we definitely mm. got into it there. And, and we got into it a lot, actually, considering. I mean, our first time interviewing Alex and Sharon took up two episodes, I think. And this time with Uncivil Outlaw, it took up three episodes and, th- and, and like, three separate Skype conversations. Do you even remember if the first Q&A was all one Skype conversation, or do we actually divide it up into multiple like we did with Uncivil Outlaw? I think we might have uh, divided it into two, but uh, uh, Greg, do you think we can convince or trick them into doing four episodes of interviews next time? (sighs) I mean, I think it entirely depends on whatever list of questions we actually come up with if we have enough questions like we had well... a huge, we had a huge question list last time and to be perfectly honest the way we meandered around a little bit some of them just got left on the cutting room floor because it felt like it already been covered in part or they weren't going to necessarily lead us anywhere interesting or even just the fact that we had you know we'd already done two one-and-a-half-hour sessions to begin Mm. with, and we were like, well, we don't want to take too much more time with Alex and Sharon going over everything, so I just wanted to pare down the list, the stuff you're most interested in. The trick, then, is to create, you know, a page or two of very short, innocuous-looking questions that Alex and Sharon will look at and think, like, oh, well, this is pretty sort of concise. We can knock this out in a session. But we will structure those questions full well knowing that they are exactly the kind of questions that will inspire hours and hours of conversation. (laughs) Trapdoor questions. Trapdoor questions. (laughs) That's the name of it. Through the window and trapdoor questions. There we go. (laughs) Oh, dear. So. Cartographer's Handbook. Cartographer's Handbook. Yes, exactly so. So after this long ramble about the history of Through the Window and what we have potentially coming down the pike. I mean, it's the one year anniversary. We have to do a certain amount of reflection, right? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. It, this is definitely a time of reflection for us, considering where we've been and where we're going to go. Uh, still in our own rooms because it's a <laughs> pandemic. Right. I keep forgetting that. Well, at least the pandemic ensures that we're, you know, we have plenty of time to actually talk about this. But then would you say that for both of us, Greg, that our escape in a time of the pandemic lay through the window? God damn it, Toby! (laughs) Oh, God. I'd say you plan that, but I think we all know at this point is you are a, I, I'm the planner, you are the pun sniper. <laughs> I don't even have the wherewithal to set up a like long range sniping thing. I'm the pun pot shotter. Oh yeah, yeah, you, you're exactly. You're the the sniper is the one that waits for the opportune moment. You're just shooting from the hip and going bing bing. You're the you're 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 the Annie Oakley. You're the trick shot. 
And there will be a number of misses, but the one that hits, I'll just say, first try. Got it in one. Uh, uh, anyway. Let's actually begin discussing how we are planning to discuss the Cartographer's Handbook. As previously mentioned, we keep getting off track, but now now we're serious. Serious faces, serious, serious business. Mm. As previously I've got my mentioned, suit and everything. <laughs> my hair's slicked back. Go on. As previously mentioned, our plan overall was to discuss the Cartographer's Handbook in two sections. First of all, we are going to talk about it in its role as being the handbook itself. Uh, basically a guide for the cartographers in general, the RSA, and for bringing the disparate members of what is left of the United States into the new reunified States of America. And then for our second episode, a plan which, by the way, has already gone off the rails, instead of talking about the nitty gritty and, you know, the ideas that Arlington has sketched out for this new America, we'll be talking about the individual characters and how they contribute to that overall goal. Because let's face it, the way this book is structured is not as your typical piece of fiction. When the Cartographer's Handbook came into being, Alex has gone on the record as saying that he was heavily influenced by the works of Max Brooks. And the way that actually took place was first in what is referred to as the Zombie Survival Guide, which is, in theory, literally a handbook in terms of like, is there a zombie apocalypse? Here's some important do's and don'ts that you need to be aware of. First of all, what are the different kinds of zombie apocalypses? What weapons work best on them? What should you avoid? And what are the best methods for preserving you and yours during the time of a zombie apocalypse? There is definitely a fictional aspect to it because, in our world at least, zombies don't exist. The Walking Dead don't exist, put it that way. And so therefore, even though it looks like the kind of thing that you would buy in a store for like, you know, here's how you survive in the wilderness. Here's how you survive in the Arctic or, you know, any normal handbook that actually gives you handy advice about this. It encompasses this weird in-between place where on the face of it, some of these recommendations make sense. But they also make sense in theory for a scenario that would never actually exist. So it's entertaining, but not entertaining necessarily in the same way that a pure, a, a normal fictional book would be entertaining. A narrative by traditional means. Exactly, a narrative. That's definitely the word we want to use there. Mm. It kind of takes the form of a thought exercise, essentially. Yes. Yeah, that that that's another really good a really good set of words to use there. Now, this was inordinately popular. Max Brooks went on to create World War Z, something that people may be familiar with because they eventually made a crappy movie with Brad Pitt that was based on very loosely some of the stuff that Max Brooks was trying to do with his novel. His novel was like telling the tale of a world that had been overcome by a zombie apocalypse and had accounts of, you know, when the plague first started, as it grew, the new normal as people tried to adapt to a zombie-ridden landscape and how not just the U.S., but the entire world eventually comes back from that. And it comes entirely from vignettes basically accounts that were taken by people that survived this multi-year apocalypse, so to speak, and talked about their experiences for better and for ill, and still encompasses this very linear narrative of like, here's where we were, here's where we went to, 
and here's where we are now. How is the world different now that we've had to come back from all of this with everything changed? It's entirely compelling, particularly if you actually listen to the audio drama version of it, where they get a whole lot of really good voice actors, including some big names of like actors that you would have heard of, like Nathan Fillion, to voice out some of those individual vignettes. So that's the stage we're setting so far. Mm. The Cartographer's Handbook is borrowing on both of these books in order to set up this new world that New Century encompasses. Not the entire world, because as we've established by now, New Century is a multiverse, but the bulk of the stories take place in this version of the world, many of them in America, that has been overrun by Wendigo. And... You know, as we get into the Princess Thieves, we're going to see how other places in the world have dealt with said Wendigo plague, because it's not just America. But so far, with Secret Rooms and the Cartographer's Handbook and Arlington after this, primarily it's focused on how has America dealt with or not dealt with Wendigo basically invading reconstruction north and south and kind of destroyed a lot of the infrastructure and government and regular things you could count on as a result of sickness and death and the world becoming a far more dangerous place. And it happens at a very significant moment of America's history because nominally it's meant to be this big turning point their civil war has finished and it has determined the trajectory of america going into the next century which is why the events and the developments that this book details is set up or was set up initially to be this introduction to a new century essentially Mm. a new version of a century that we wouldn't expect to follow from this time period. Mm-hmm. I say that nominally this was meant to be a turning point. I think what this series has done over the years has shown that as much as the narrative would be, and we beat the racists and racism was fixed. Yay. That's not what happened. So it is one of the ongoing pieces of, Meta narrative that New Century in general has been thoroughly shaped by the modern landscape of mm. the past seven years, eight years mm. now, because this all began back in 2013. Things have shifted dramatically. And so, therefore, the course that Alex was on back when he first started writing this is very different now. uh, tonally and in terms of the intended plot twists have changed the characters have changed although some of that is just because of other circumstances honestly when when this was originally taking shape there was the overall consideration that we were going to be going into 2016 with hillary clinton at the helm and that didn't happen And that means that some of the ideals and ideas and plot points that began with Cartographer's Handbook and Secret Rooms have changed a lot. Mm. So from a certain standpoint, Cartographer's Handbook might be considered a little bit of a throwback, but because it also incorporates this in-between place then it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think that that's significant to the idea of what New Century is about, grief. And Mm -hmm. this week, at time of recording, uh, the most recent School of Movies episode was on WandaVision. And Mm -hmm. a big part of the conversation in that is how grief is this feeling of not just mourning a person who's gone, but it's mourning a direction that your life you thought it was going to head in 
but now you know you're confronted that that version of your life can never be that mm -hmm. it won't go in that direction for the world of new century the world of well centrum that is the version of life that you know it could have been is the history and reality that we as readers know happened mm. they have to figure out what comes next for themselves and that is very much the message of thomas as narrator in this book is he is trying to use the cartographer's handbook as a sort of means of not just unification for america but collective therapy that mm. or at least Thomas and uh, are we saying at this point that Sarah also has a important hand in how parts of this book turned out? I mean, there are there may be new readers that don't know who Sarah Arlington is, but mm. uh, I mean, we're going to be talking about her soon enough. But yeah. so, yeah, consider it the handbook as being the collaboration of a husband and wife team. Mm. And you'll learn more about how that part of it gets shaped. Uh, mm. as we proceed into Arlington. Yeah. So the idea I'm touching on now could actually be more of Sarah's hand, the moments in the book that are kind of reaching out to people. I think if Thomas gave in to all of his impulses, I think cartographers would come across a lot more instructional and this is how it is now, mm. whereas there's much more of an appeal being made. And I think that's a result of Sarah's influence on the book the therapy of saying we are going to re-examine the moment at which the trauma happened for us we're going to come to terms with it to try and make a better future with the way things are now well i don't think that thomas arlington doesn't care about empathy because that's actually a talking point that comes up at a later discussion in arlington mm. But I would agree that overall, Sarah Arlington is probably better at tapping into that because that's the kind of person who she is. But I think we'll leave further discussion of Sarah to that book itself. The one thing I wanted to add is just sort of the fascinating meta narrative of if, as you say, the experience of New Century is exploring a world, is exploring the grief and the fact that things did not go the way people expected, then the writing of New Century is almost a meta-commentary on that itself, because now New Century has not gone where Alex himself originally intended. Mm. So, yeah, that's a... And that's something that'll really bake your noodle right there. It's, it's a cyclical thing, because mm. New Century is, in one way, escapism, because it's very much looking at the world we live in right now is fucked in so many ways. What if we went back to a point where there could have been a significant turning point mm. and looking at all of the positive elements of this world that could be or the like the hope that's in there mm -hmm. is almost like we're grieving that that's not the case or that wasn't the case for us. But so it becomes this like grief that the world isn't like New Century, but then New Century becomes part of the reflective and restorative like grieving process of what is happening in the world as we go on. For It, it becomes a cycle and it's mm. weird and it's a confusing and yeah. I mean, it was one of the side points that Johann Krieger made back during secret rooms was when he was having the discussion with abigail and james and he was telling them without quite telling them that you know the future had all of this not happened was going to lead to some very difficult places and being that we are part of a future where some of those things happened we can see potentially that maybe he had outsider knowledge of the way a version of Earth would have gone. But this is only stuff that we see in hindsight now, because when he's first telling that story, 
he just seems to be this, you know, intelligent, strange man, and we don't know that he has access to portal technology, so to speak, through the power of Greta. But obviously, further discussion of the multiverse and Krieger and Greta, those themselves will have to wait for another book as we start exploring the implications of a multiverse. And Mm -hmm. thinking about it, it's actually going to take a while. So once again, let's return to discussion of the Cartographer's Handbook as itself. So Mm -hmm. when we first started talking about this all the way back in Secret Rooms, I was considering the handbook from the perspective of being propaganda, regardless of its intention to provide as much true information as possible to convince people to agree with the RSA's new policies. This is an idea that James himself talks about when they encounter the corpses of the dead Wendigo, and he suddenly gets new information that was not in the handbook, suggesting that maybe the cartographer's handbook wasn't giving him all the information that he felt he was due to make correct decisions on the matter. He has a confrontation slash, you know, final agreement with Frank Butler during all of this. And this talking point has sort of been moved off of. But trust us, this is, as you say, things are cyclical. This will come back around later on as we have more discussion about some of those early plot points. So within the realm of this is what we're covering now as this part of the timeline, I think the best term to use for the cartographer's handbook would be something more along the lines of manifesto. Because while Thomas Arlington is not running for office, while Ulysses Grant isn't like running for re-election based on this handbook, Back when the handbook was first written, there was no room for much of a democratic system. They were still actually trying to recover and get enough people working together that they actually had some sort of functioning human infrastructure, let alone resource infrastructure. But it is still closer to a declaration of policy and aims as might be written by a politician or leader of some other group. And using the word manifesto also doesn't have some of the same negative connotations as calling it specifically propaganda, whether it is or not. Obviously, we're not going to get a deeper look into Arlington's mind until we cover his story, you know, in a couple of episodes. But for now, even when Arlington shares his personal story as a part of the handbook, it's still primarily meant to be a tool for bringing the shards of America together and should be treated as such. Yeah, I also agree that this feels like it is intended as a manifesto with the added use of being propaganda. While there isn't a case of this government having to run for office, you know, they don't have competition, a Mm. political opponent, essentially. They are essentially trying to convince a population that, has existed government-less for over a decade to accept this one that's requesting action and cooperation from them. In a sense, they're petitioning the survivors of America to accept them as their government for the foreseeable future. There may not be implication of an alternate choice, but it is still reminiscent of a political campaign. It actually makes me think of, as a... As a competing metaphor or fictional world uh toby i'm curious if you ever played any of the fallout games i have uh, three new vegas and four sort of bethesda onwards uh, not <sighs> the first two the reason i bring that up is that there are a couple different organizations over the course of those stories that the would seem Well, the Enclave is its own thing, also the Brotherhood of Steel, but the one that specifically comes to mind as trying to be a replacement government that is spreading out its influence and trying to bring some form of normality back to the world would be what's referred to in 
Fallout 2 and some of the later games as the New California Republic. Ah, uh, yeah. And NCO. the Yeah, the NCR, exactly. And they the some of the interesting things there is that while on some level they are positioned as being a preferable alternative to some of the other options out there, particularly when you start talking about things like New Vegas and uh Caesar's the, Legion, holy shit. Yeah, exactly. I mean I've seen plenty of episodes there that discuss like the good sides and the bad sides of both of them. I still think that overall I prefer the NCR to Caesar's Legions because it makes a little bit too big of an ask to accept that kind of a rule going back all the way to, you know, the Roman Empire and everything like that. Mm, I'm not, I'm, I don't hold to the people who are literally crucifying people. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah as a uh, strong flavor, big ass, and <laughs> like that. It, it, it also brings to mind, actually, the way some of the stuff was portrayed in, say, Skyrim, where the Skyrim lords better known as the Stormcloaks, whose name utterly avoided me during the initial recording, were fighting back against the Empire. And as so it's like, you know, oh, they're the Rebellion. We definitely want to be on their side. And then we get to learn more about them. It's like, well, they're kind of racist, though. Mm. Do we really want to have support them over the Empire? And then you remember, well, the Empire wasn't all that great either. So now you're kind of stuck a little bit between a rock and a hard place in terms of, like, do you really want to support one or the other over the established order? I I do appreciate overall, and of course, Thomas Arlington sells it pretty hard, that coming together in cooperation is far better than trying to go and have everybody just rely on themselves like cool i think we can all agree in general cooperation is better than a mindset of everybody out for their own interests and everything like that mm. um but you know as we continue to go through the handbook itself and as we continue to go through the story of new century we will discover that you know there aren't complications along the way that you know goals are all very well and good but it doesn't mean that we always pick the right way of trying to achieve them. Mm. And it's, in... it's very much a, like, the best intentions slash the, like, this is something that if we follow this plan, in theory, it will all work. Yeah. Without necessarily accounting for, or, you know, like, coming apart a little bit once resistance is actually brought into the equation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looking at the handbook from the point of a manifesto because as i said we're going to be covering the individual stories of characters as part of the second episode on the subject the information as broken down is a lot of the drier stuff that we've already talked about that is well if you listen to the audio drama version of this book like, if you, if you read the book itself, then all of it is just sort of written out, you know, factually, and, you know, this is what you have to do, this is the tools they would recommend, this is the information that you need in order to properly protect yourself, this is what the RSA is trying to do, uh, and here are, you know, accounts of people that show us how we've gotten to this point, but also are talking points for you know, encouraging people to come around and see that, you know, this new plan for America is the best choice. If you listen to the audio drama, then everything is narrated in Thomas Arlington's voice as if he was either reading the book to other people, which, as has been established in Secret Rooms, is something the cartographers actually did whenever they reached new communities and to sort of, in order to bring them in as part of the fold. But as the primary author, I mean, we, the cat's out of the bag now that he's not the only author of it, but that isn't actually covered until Arlington. So he's the one that narrates everything and lays out 
the dry information and then gives way to other voices dictating their own personal accounts as the audio drama plays out. Mm. It's it's sort of, I think the book and the audio drama as sort of text for us rather than in-world text makes it very important that we see these as his words. He's not trying to be necessarily a neutral voice to present the information. They no, he's, are he's actually, trying to be a leader, yeah. He's trying to be a leader. He's trying to actually give a person and a figure behind the words as he entreats the audience that these books will be read aloud to to listen to him, that they aren't just, like, formless, like, their words without a voice. They're actually being spoken by someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, putting a voice behind the words is important in general. It's also intriguing in that I feel like the book itself comes across a lot drier in general because it bounces back and forth between Thomas's, you know, factual statement of truths and information and in between the individual accounts of the various people who have given their voices to the past, the present, and the future, as well as current cartographers talking about their experiences fighting the Wendigo and also dealing with this new world that we've come into. But because the cartographer's handbook encapsulates more than just text, it brings in music and sometimes even diegetic sound to sort of put us in the time and place of those accounts. In that way, it works far better in those moments as an actual narrative. It like we're, we're, we're pausing the PowerPoint nature of it to a certain extent in order to talk about the human lives and the empathy and the actual feelings that are involved in all of this. Um, it certainly emphasizes the people behind each account, the transitions from one person to another. Early on in the book, you get this fantastically delivered uh, account of someone turning into a Wendigo, which is mm. from Daniel Floyd of uh, New oh, Frame Plus. New Frame Plus, and yeah. my God, we are definitely going to talk about that next time, because holy shit, that performance. It's... Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but the that as a manifesto that's very important is mm -hmm. that you you're kind of introduced to here's the person and occasionally you'll hear a couple of sentences of explanation like after that account thomas actually says that afterwards he was given the grave the grave digger medal of honor or the grave medal of honor oh um, god i think no, it's the no. grave medal of honor uh, for bravery, sort of mm. posthumously, and they even include the detail that the child that he was hoping to name John, Jonathan, Jonathan after yeah. his father, was in fact a daughter and was named Joanna. So mm -hmm. there is very early on, because that's the first account other than Thomas, an importance to the fact that these aren't just sort of nameless statistics or like general thing they are people and mm -hmm. an interest is shown in their lives and i think that's a important part to what this book is trying to do is to entreat to people's empathy after you know after so many years of being inwardly focused to actually mm -hmm. hear out other people is important that you need to convince people that to unify you have to imagine that other people have gone through similar things that the writers of this book know that the different communities will have gone through and known people who have gone through this. Yeah, that's, again, we'll, we'll get into more detail about this um, when we talk about those individual stories. People in their own communities are going to have naturally empathy for each other. Mm. So these stories are particularly important in terms of invoking empathy for people 
these the the ones that this handbook is going to be read to would never have met. Mm. So one could very much say that each of the stories is tactical. Yeah. In, in, in point of fact, even as they're talking about something simple like the tools and weapons, when Samuel Tudor talks about how he invented the Clementine as being a part of some of that earlier dry stuff, or Julius Kaufman talks about the importance of all of the tools in a medical kit because he's mm. the he's the resident doctor. While some of that stuff could be considered very clinical, it still puts a human face on mm. the account that is separate from uh, uh, Thomas Arlington's voice itself. Mm. It could be the thing is it could be more clinical. It could be mm. more just the facts and just the information, but. It's not. These little signs of individuality are still there. You know, Kaufman is a, in the audio drama especially, just a wonderful kind of doctor to listen to mm. in that way you often want in fiction the doctor to have this sort of, like, not a bedside manner that kind of is irreverent to the idea of bedside manner and is just like, <laughs> okay, you need to do this. If you're not, you are done. And the bones, like, damn it, I'm a, like, it's all of that. It's, I think, including that side of the Doctor, not having signs of this be heavily edited or, or that there's, I forget, blanking the word, but the point is, I'm not exactly sure what word Toby was going for, but I think he was trying to communicate the idea that one can almost respect and appreciate when someone is blunt and straightforward and honest, rather than smooth and diplomatic. Kaufman doesn't come across as abrasive as, say, Dr. House would, but he also speaks in a matter-of-fact manner that doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's a government statement that is not sort of highly cultivated it is like it is very tactical but it has strategic like revealings of individuality and humanity in there mm -hmm. and i think that each time the cartographer's handbook is being read aloud to each group of people it's a gamble mm -hmm. and so it has to have these moments of like gambling in there just like and one of the biggest ones comes at the very end in the audio broke up here, but the gamble that Toby was referring to is the fact that the text we read is the second edition of the handbook, now including elements not in the version that was read to James and Abigail way back when, including the whole of Thomas' story and other uncomfortable truths that the director wanted added. That is such a interesting thing from a sort of meta sort of storytelling perspective, because you're made very much aware of what is and isn't included and the additions and the changes between different versions. It's like our conversations of secret rooms and secret rooms to the definitive edition, except it's actually part of the original text. Mm, mm, yeah, exactly. So yeah, as the handbook lays out itself, it begins with an official classification for the Wendigo, the dangers they pose, their behavior, how infection spreads, and how to best strategize in regards to contact and eradication. Then we start getting into tools and weapons, as well as going back to the past and talking about the myriad ways in which individual communities, but also cities and armed forces succumb to the plague and other related systemic collapse due to chaos and fear. That's when we get into the account Weirwood, which mm -hmm. some people have been waiting for for a while, if you're new listeners, because this is the thing that was alluded to all the way back in early chapters of Secret Rooms that we only heard small snippets of when Annie was getting the account from Catherine Holloway. Now we're hearing that story in total and why it is that Annie reacted the way she did in terms of this is going to be a perfect piece that we're going to want to include in the second printing. Mm -hmm. Again, we'll talk more about that next time. Next time. From there, we go back into some of Thomas's dry details about 
how much the U.S. has lost and therefore what it means in terms of the numbers of the enemy of the Wendigo that they're actually going to have to face. And, you know, be like, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is a difficult situation. You need to have this information. Not in a way that we're trying to scare you necessarily, although you should be scared. But, like, this is why we have set onto the course that we have, because our enemy is this large and hits below the belt in a way that a normal enemy doesn't, basically. It's not the same as fighting other humans. Mm. I mean, it would be completely useless for Thomas to not be completely honest about the direness of their situation. These people know it. They're not mm -hmm. going to buy even the most jingoistic and deluded souls out there aren't going to buy that this like new government that they're proposing has a complete handle on the situation and mm -hmm. it's all absolutely fine and that there's no danger whatsoever. They've lived through it. Yeah. But I think that it certainly puts into focus how much more they could lose if they have already suffered this many casualties. It means that this isn't someone trying to like beseech people to please listen to their warnings of how bad it could be when mm -hmm. they don't have prior evidence of it. They've lived through it. These aren't mm -hmm. hypothetical numbers. They're documented statistics. Mm -hmm. It's a precedent, which means that it can repeat. Yeah, exactly. It's basically like you can continue to try and survive as long as you can by yourself. But the thing is, is like, here's what you're actually dealing with. And therefore, reunifying with this new government that is trying to rebuild is in everyone's long term interest, because if you don't, you know, it's it's a little bit of some of the conversation that Annie had with Catherine Holloway way back in Secret Rooms about the reasons why James and and Abigail were would be useful to the war effort specifically. And Catherine's going on the whole tangent of, am I sending them off to die? And Annie is saying, look, there's a high chance of that happening, but if we don't all work towards a greater goal, and if we don't accept that there have to be some sacrifices along the way, sometimes sacrifices of your best people, then things aren't going to get better. Annie is good at putting a very empathetic face on it, even as she's presenting some hard truths to Catherine. The book itself is perhaps a little bit more, not cold about it, but sort of factual in the way that Thomas can sometimes be. But, you know, it's it's still the same message overall that you can't necessarily continue on the way you have been. And mm. if we provide a cogent plan, as it comes out with the next section of laying out the duties of the cartographer and, you know, what their activities are going to be in terms of bringing communities back together, building armies and mustering a proper response to taking back major cities that would provide better protection for the remnants of humanity. That's a part of the whole convincing thing. Like mm -hmm. the two of the two of them are laid right next to each other. Here's the enemy that we face. And this is why we're going into this mode of total conscription and total war in terms of we need everybody and every resource that we can muster if we are going to have a hope against rebuilding this country and saving everybody's lives. Mm. They're making a case. Yeah, exactly. In order to further bolster this idea, they then go on to accounts from the army, and specifically Nathaniel Curtis, who's going to go on to be a very popular secondary character, uh, about the efforts that he went to in order to protect his soldiers while still making progress against the hordes of the Wendigo and, you know, championing morale and making progress and making it feel like the coming together and fighting for a greater thing is actually the right thing to do. 
he's definitely a very charismatic voice and his story is definitely going to play in in a major way as we get into some of the political stuff of Arlington. Here's Up. where I'm sorry, go ahead. Now nah, I was just going to make a snarky joke saying a book that gets political. Well, <laughs> I've lost my interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you, uh, like I get from a certain standpoint that during the apocalypse, maybe the thing that you don't actually care about is, politics all that much but you know one of the things that arlington itself is going to cover is that just because these far-flung communities that the cartographers are trying to reach may not necessarily care about politics the stuff that the rsa has already reclaimed is having some semblance of returning to some of those old concerns because they feel safe and because you know as the RSA provides a potential return to normalcy. That means that they want some of those old things back, whether it's stuff like money or different political parties or a choice in the voice of whoever it is that's actually going to be taking action on all of their behalves. Pro up and till now. As long as we're rolling the clock back to before the Wendigo arrived, why don't we roll the clock back a little more to when we had this whole issue about, you know, which side of America was having some good ideas? You know what I'm saying? Oh, God. Now I just don't want to talk about Arlington. Fuck. I'm yeah. sorry. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fine. We'll get there. We'll talk we'll about there. it. Yeah. I mean, you know, for, if. For no other reason, this is... I'll have to go back to my reasons for wanting to separate out Arlington the way I did. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. I'll have to separate it up further if it feels like individual episodes are Hard heavy enough. than others. Yeah, exactly. And if we need to focus more time on those subjects in those chapters than some of the others. Unfortunately, that's going to be our stopping point for this week. Initially... Toby and I were going to start strong by scheduling a recording session each week, giving us two weeks' worth of content with every session. But due to real-world activities, we've already had to push back the recording of Part 2 of our analysis of the Cartographer's Handbook. So even though as of time of editing, we have about three and a half hours' worth of discussion for Part 1 that was going to be divided evenly among two episodes... I am instead going to stretch that to three episodes to give us more breathing room. Besides, over the last couple of weeks, I was putting out twice the content due to news of the century appealing to a more niche audience. So this is just a return to form. What I can say is this. We initially thought discussion of the handbook was going to go quickly, and it clearly expanded which speaks well of our ability to reassess and reappreciate this, the foundation of New Century. We even made some startling connections along the way that I can't wait to share with the rest of you. To close us out, a piece of music that is shockingly thematically relevant. Not only do the lyrics imply at the presence of an apocalypse, much like New Century itself, but the hook suggests we reflect back on our past, which both the novel and this very episode do in various ways. Until next time, this is Matchbox 20 with How Far We've Come.
without crew Now it's over for me and it's over for you Let's go, go, baby, it's all gone There's no one on the corner and there's no one at home But it was cool, cool, it was just all cool Now it's over for me and it's over for you